We're going to be in John chapter 2. This will be our last sermon in the Gospel of John. Next week, we will begin a final series on the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. But today, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When he, therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. From the third chapter of the Bible, there is clearly a great gulf that separates the creatures of God and the creator God. From Adam and Eve in the garden, partaking of that fruit, suddenly humanity changed. Fundamentally, the relationship between creature and creator was altered by a simple bite of fruit. And at that point, those who God had created in a world that was very good, those who intimately fellowshiped with him, who walked with him, who spoke with him, were alienated from him. In order to ensure this, God set up an angel who guarded Eden. Eventually, Eden was destroyed in a flood. And the rest of the Bible outlines this story of alienation. God makes commands. Man disobeys them. God restores the relationship by making covenants. Man disregards those covenants. The story is repeated over and over throughout the Bible. There is an uncrossable gulf between God and his creation. A gulf that we cannot possibly make our way across. Yet, God, in his love, God the covenant maker, God the one who reaches out to people, God who is love, who builds relationships with people who are hostile to him, God makes a way for true fellowship to happen. And throughout the Old Testament, that happens primarily through what we call the temple. And that temple has various iterations. But the purpose of that temple is that God would then dwell with man. God would come down from heaven and dwell with his people. Now, of course, there, there's some tensions in there because of the fact that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So what do we mean when we say God dwells with his people? We're talking about that unique uh, relational presence that God has with his people. That is not there everywhere. In some sense, because God is everywhere, we could say that God is in hell. It is not a place that is outside of his presence. However, there is another sense in which we would say that hell is the absence of God's presence. It's one word that we use in a multitude of different ways. The temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament was that unique place where God reached down. God was relationally present with his creation. 
That temple allowed God to dwell. That temple allowed relationship to happen. Fellowship happens in the temple. Most importantly, reconciliation happens in the temple where blood is shed and sacrifice to show that God must allow that relationship to be restored. And then man in that temple worships God. We get to this text. And we see Jesus interacting with the temple. Already in chapter 1 of John, we spent much time talking about the word becoming flesh and tabernacling, templing with us. The word becomes flesh and suddenly this Old Testament temple is present on the earth. The relationship with God comes not through a building, but through a person. That's already been established in chapter 1. That should already be in our heads when we open this up. But we see now Jesus interacting with a temple built by hands. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Right? So it's appropriate that we're here on Easter because it is Passover time, uh, a similar time of the year to when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Why? Does John the Evangelist call it the Passover of the Jews? Was there a Passover of the Greeks? Well, what was the point? Uh, was he assuming that people didn't know that it was a Jewish holiday? Probably not. There's no reason that he would assume that. But particularly throughout this book, the Jews is going to focus our attention on not an ethnic group per se, but particularly the religious leaders of that ethnic group. Throughout the Gospel of John, the Jews come and ask questions of Jesus. And here, it's using it in the same way. By saying the Passover of the Jews, it's turning our mind towards the same group that's already started asking Jesus questions and will continue to ask Jesus questions throughout his ministry. Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were sealing oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So here's the setting. He comes into the temple, and when he walks into the temple, he finds a group of people. Most likely, this is in the region of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. So the outermost part of the temple where all Gentiles could come. And this court is filled up with people who are selling animals and people who are money changers. Now, what's the big deal about that? And the synoptics retellings of Jesus casting people out of the temple, there's two different stories. We'll talk about that in a second. But in their retellings, there's an emphasis on the fact that uh, the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So part of the issue at play here is that the court of the Gentiles, where all nations are welcome, is the part where they've kind of camped and they've, they're basically preventing it from being used as it was intended. That's not the emphasis of John's account, though. Instead, it's talking here about the financial dealings. You see, if you were traveling at this time and you were coming from out of town, coming to Jerusalem where everyone gathered together to worship, going up to Jerusalem. Now, the account before this, Jesus was in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. So we might think, why is it going up to Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is on a hill. So every time you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up to Jerusalem. They come up to Jerusalem after changing the water into wine up in Galilee, and they come in. And if you're like Jesus here, if you're like someone who's spread out all around Palestine, maybe you don't want to take that long trip with a bunch of animals. Maybe you don't want to go on that long trip hauling your oxen behind you. 
So they would establish markets in Jerusalem, and those markets would sell sacrifices to the people. There's nothing inherently wrong with this. Part of it is location. And I would also suggest that now we get to the talk about money changers, we're going to start seeing a little bit more of what's going on. Because if you're coming throughout the, from throughout the world, at this point the Jews have somewhat been scattered around the world, not as much as they will be in the next 100 years following this, but they're already starting to scatter around the world. They're coming with foreign currency. And so they come into town with foreign currency and no animals. And the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders rather, those who are already emphasized here, they're in charge of the Temple Mount. And they, say, they see an opportunity. Say, let's bring everyone here and we can charge a cot on, on the sales that people make of their stuff. And so by restricting them to the temple, by bringing all these merchants into the temples, first of all, the, the religious leaders are profiting. They can say, hey, we've got a prime spot here. You could set up your little animal booth on the outside of town where only the people coming from the direction you're parked at are going to come, or you can set up your spot in the temple. You can be right Grand Central Station, right in the middle of town, and everyone will be able to come to you if you give us 10% of your profits. And so they had this set up where you could, you could be there and the temple would profit, the, the religious leaders would profit, as well as those who are actually selling. Not only that, you're coming in with the, this a currency from out of town. Well, how are you going to pay for this? Well, have we got a deal for you? In order to make this more convenient for you, money changers. If you want to set up in the temple property, then you can set up and just pass us 10% or whatever of your profits. And so what ended up happening is rather than offering a service to serve those who were coming to worship and say, we get that you can't bring your animals. We're going to give them to you. We're, we're going to sell them to you at a fair price. Instead, there's this kind of circular racket going on. Come here. You need to buy an animal. Well, you can't buy an animal with your money. So come here and we'll take a cut here and we'll take a cut here. And it's kind of this uh, temple Ponzi scheme happening. And so they start making all this money, and the worship, the prelude to worship, is not turning people's focus towards God. The prelude to worship is profiting the temple leaders. So what does Jesus do? He sees this happening. He makes a whip of cords. So he picks up ropes, perhaps braids them together, makes a whip out of these cords. He physically makes it. And Jesus, little Jesus, meek and mild, always holding a sheep in his hands, picks up this cord and goes through the temple, whipping with the cord. Now, he's driving animals from the temple, so it makes sense that he has a cord to whip. But that's not the way the text phrases it. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So we might think, oh, he's using the whip to drive the sheep and oxen out. No, He's using the whip to drive the sellers out and the money changers out. And if he gets some sheep and oxen out on the side, that's good too. Jesus comes in with anger. You can get the image out of your mind of Jesus who's always nice, Jesus who's always kind. Jesus is always loving. He is not always nice. And so Jesus in the temple is angered because of the corruption of worship. Because rather than being a place to worship God, the temple has become a place to profit off of those who have come to worship God. And so Jesus, with veins 
and his head with anger, with his face turning red. He's fully man. He's demonstrating all the signs of human anger, picks up this whip and drives these people out of the temple. He poured out the coins, the money changers. He overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house, house of trade. This temple is cleansed. Jesus comes in and he tears stuff up because he is zealous for the protection of the worship of God. A couple things to, to observe here. First of all, there is a question of the timing of the cleansing. And John, the cleansing of the temple is one of the very first things Jesus does in his ministry. We're only in chapter 2. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, however, put it at the very end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus cleansing the temple is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back with the Pharisees, and they then go on to crucify him because of that. So the question has to be asked, did it happen twice, or is this recorded in different places in, each, in, in different Gospels? And it's not a, it's not a topic that, that truth uh, rises and falls on. There are sometimes when we talk about timing and things like that in the Bible, where we're saying, are we going to believe the Bible or not? John, nowhere in this account, indicates that it was the first Passover of Jesus' ministry. And in other times, it's clear that the, the writers of the Gospels do arrange the events of Jesus' ministry topically rather than chronologically. Sometimes they're very explicitly clear that it's chronological. Other times it's more topical. So they're focusing on, on miracles that accomplished a similar thing. You might see a bunch of healings right together, right in a row. Well, they might not have happened right in a row. That's not the purpose that John or, or Matthew or Mark or Luke is trying to communicate. They're just saying, here's a way that Jesus performed miracles, and let's look at these similar miracles together. It's, it's not a the Bible's true, the Bible's authoritative or not sort of question. However, in this particular situation, though a case can be made both ways, I think it's best to understand that this is actually an event that happened two times. And I say that for, for a couple reasons. For one thing, the first chap five chapters of John don't overlap with the synoptic, the other three Gospels at all. The other three Gospels, they're very similar. But John, the first five chapters, they have nothing in common with each other. Well, I mean, they're talking about Jesus. But the particular accounts, it's not recorded in each God, in John and in the synoptics. John is recording unique, unique accounts. So this would be the exception to that. And anytime there's an exception, that doesn't mean it's necessarily not the case. It's just unusual. So for one thing... Uh, it, it seems uh, likely that it happened twice because the first five chapters of John don't otherwise overlap with the other Gospels. And besides that, the two accounts, uh, you have the, uh, the, the two different types of accounts. The three synoptic Gospels are very similar. Jesus says the same words. It's described the same way. But John and those three accounts are very different. And the synoptics, it talks about God's house being a house of prayer. And John, it talks about not making God's house a, a, a house of, of commerce, a house of merchandise. And so they're really focusing on two completely different elements of the cleansing of the temple. So this is not a hill to die on. 
If you hear someone saying it, there's only one and it's recorded in different places in different ways, doesn't mean they're, they're denying the authority of Scripture. However, I think it's likely that Jesus did this two times, separated by two or three years between the two of them. And you can also imagine if he comes back and does it a second time, the, the temple leaders would be a little more upset that time uh, because, hey, didn't you just do this two years ago? Uh, and so it's likely that it happened twice. Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, he, take, he tells them to take the things away. Don't make Father's house a house of trade. What's the purpose of the temple? What's the significance of the temple? Before Jesus, there's a series of places that take the place of the temple. The first temple is the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden functions in the Old Testament as a garden temple. There are some striking similarities between the Garden of Eden and the instructions given for the tabernacle, the descriptions of Solomon's temple. There are some striking similarities, but most significantly is the fact that the temple and the garden are both the places where communion with God occurs in the Old Testament. God reaches out in specific locations to his people. And so in that first temple, that first garden temple, we see the temple in all of its glory. There is no restriction on the relationship between God and man. It has similarities with the temple. It also has differences with the temple. There are parts of the, the garden temple, parts of Eden, that are off limits. But it's merely the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They can go wherever they go within the garden, but they're not supposed to, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they're free to walk around. They're free to commune with God. When you start establishing the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, that is not a description that would apply to that temple. It's not a place of free movement. You have different courts. You have walls. You have curtains. You have lines you don't cross. You have the Holy of Holies, which no one can enter except for the high priest, and he can only enter it once a year. You have all this, these barriers. So there's differences, but that communion with God happens in that garden temple. But what happens in the garden temple? What happens in Eden? Sin destroys it. Sin destroys that temple, and God separates himself from people by casting them out of the garden. Time goes on, and eventually God reaches out to his people again through the covenants made with Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants and Moses, and God reaches out in covenant with Moses, and he gives instructions for building a new dwelling place on the earth, and that is the tabernacle. Tabernacle is slightly different, but has similarities. God comes and he dwells with his people through the tabernacle. However, in the tabernacle, the intent of the design continually emphasizes the separateness of God. See, in the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are just with God everywhere. And the tabernacle, God's presence is most fully seen in the Holy of Holies, which they cannot enter. There are curtains around it. There are walls around it. You can't go in the Holy of Holies unless you're the high priest and it's the, and it's the day of atonement. You can't go in the holy place unless you're a priest. You can't go in here unless you're a Jew. You can't go in anything unless you have been ritually purified. All of these things are happening here that are really focusing on the isolation between God and man. Eventually, that tabernacle uh, fits it uh, 
meets its purpose. It, it kind of comes to the end of its life. No longer do they need a tent. They need a permanent facility. And so worship in Israel is centered in Jerusalem. David asks God to build that he would be able to build a temple. Nathan says, go ahead. Three verses later, Nathan comes back and says, actually, God spoke to me. Do not build a temple. And so instead, David just gets all the stuff together and has Solomon build a temple. Solomon's temple follows much uh, of the, the plans for the tabernacle, the same ideas. There are barriers, there are boundaries, there are restrictions, yet there's this unique place where God's presence is felt. However, what happens after Solomon? There's not many good kings after Solomon, and Solomon himself was kind of a mess. And so the history of the southern kingdom of Israel, the, uh, the history of Judah, you have the temple there, but the temple ends up getting sacked. The temple ends up getting corrupted. Sin and death corrupt God's dwelling place with man in Solomon's temple. Eventually, Babylon comes and takes Judah into exile. Judah goes off into exile. They're there for 70 years when King Cyrus says to Zerubbabel, go back and build the temple. So Zerubbabel, best name in the Bible, goes back to Jerusalem, and he's going to rebuild the temple. As he's building it, all the people who knew the previous temple are like, this is not as good as the old temple. Yet, they continue building it. Eventually, it's complete. Then you get to a few years before Jesus' birth and Herod the Great. This is the Herod from Luke chapter 2, the Herod with the wise men, same guy. Herod the Great wants to build a temple. Not because he really loves God and wants to worship him, uh, given that he tried to kill Jesus, uh, but he, he wants to build a temple because it makes him look good if he's got a spectacular temple. So he starts building the temple. Eventually, the Jews reject Jesus, and punishment comes down from God, and in AD 70, that temple is destroyed. In fact, it was completed in AD 64 is when the whole complex was finished. It lasted six years before Titus, the Roman general, comes in and destroys it. So throughout the history of the temple, there's this repeated cycle. God gives instructions. God gives a temple. God gives a place for people to meet with him. And people corrupt that place, and that goes away. Happens over and over again. Yet here, Jesus comes on the scene. He comes to the temple, and he cleanses it. He, is in, he encounters the temple, and he removes the merchant's from it. The temple is supposed to be a place of worship. Jesus comes in, he knows the priests are behind this, casts them out, gets rid of the corruption, because Jesus is passionate about his father's worship. Jesus' relationship with his father motivates everything that he does, particularly in John's gospel. If you were to continue reading John's gospel, you would find Jesus constantly talking about the will of his father, that he does nothing of himself, but he does the will of the one who has sent him. And so Jesus recognizes this temple, this place that is supposed to be a place to worship God, it is corrupted and it infuriates him. Nothing makes Jesus angry like people failing to worship the father as they ought. He casts them out. Now the point of this text is not limited to the, the matter of merchants in the temple. The point of this text, as we're going to see in a second, is John's point in the gospel that we see that Jesus is the Son of God, that we believe in him and have life in his name. That's the big point. However, I think there is application to be made when we look to this account of Jesus cleansing the temple. The worship of God is not a place for profit. 
The worship of God is not a place where we serve ourselves. When we come to worship God, we must come with humility, glorifying and exalting him. Now, how does this apply to us in, in modern times? Think Jesus' message here is important, even if it's a, a, a kind of an under message. The big message that we're going to get to is that Jesus is Messiah. But the little message here is also relevant and important. The worship of God ought not be corrupted for our gain. Where are some places that this might come up in our life today? Just got a, a list of, of some specific things that I think we ought to be cautious about. And the first one, and the most common way that people talk about this, is using the church to sell stuff. Okay? Um, whether it's having fundraisers, selling things at church, things like that. I, I think there's wisdom there. Um, that, that we make sure that our church is focused on doing what we're called to do, not raising money through alternative means. Uh, many church constitutions explicitly prohibit that, uh, that, that all of the money from the church comes from free will offerings. And I think that's a good application, but not one that's really something that churches, at least our type of churches, seem to have a huge struggle with. But a couple other ones that I, I think are worth mentioning. Uh, corrupt and overpaid pastors is one example of this. There's a church in Houston, a, a Methodist megachurch. I didn't know that was a thing, that there were Methodist megachurches, but there is one, and it's in Houston. And just this week, the pastor of that church was indicted by the federal government because he used his position to convince people to invest into a fraudulent investment scheme, and he, he pilfered over a million dollars from his congregation. Now, I don't think I need to say that's bad. I think we all know that's, that's pretty clearly an example of corruption. And would, I mean, this isn't the only text you could use to say you shouldn't do that, but I think this would be one that we could turn to of many that show that that is inappropriate. However, I think on a lesser level, I think there is, there's, there's a tentative balance that we need to navigate when dealing with pastoral ministry when dealing with how people in ministry receive their compensation. And it's a very tentative balance because Paul is very clear, uh, a tenuous balance, because Paul is very clear the elders who rule well are worthy of their reward. Pastors ought to be paid, paid fairly, and even paid well. He calls it double honor. However, in our market-driven society, a lot of what we think of as ministry is profiteering. And uh, th this idea that we use our ministry to make money is problematic when we look at how Jesus deals with the temple. If we're going to be talking to people in the church, if we're going to be sharing the gospel with them, if we're going to be instructing them what the word of God says, we must make sure that our motivation is glorifying God, not making money. So I think the best bet for both pastors and churches alike is for everyone to look to uh, apply what Jesus says and taking the beam out of our own eye. Where pastors are worried about being faithful and churches are worried about giving double honor as Paul instructed, and we neither side is being selfish. I think that's, that's the wise way to go about this. Now, is that something really easy to do? Is that something that we can legislate and we can make sure that it happens that way? No, it deals with the heart. But I think that's pretty consistent with the way the Bible deals with, with uh, issues of sin. The churches ought to do their best to provide for their pastors. And 
pastors ought to do their best to not be greedy, to not preach for profit, but to make their living through preaching, as Paul says multiple times, is appropriate. And I'd also urge you, when you're thinking about your diet of preaching, even outside of the church, who are you listening to? Are you listening to people who are making their profit by, getting, by inspiring you? for lack of a better word. Are you, are you listening to people who use the word of God as a marketing tool? In fact, that's another issue particular that I think this applies to. There are some ministries out there uh, that, that make their living uh, by being what's commonly referred to as discernment ministries. They, these are, are people, sometimes on the radio, sometimes uh, on blogs, sometimes magazines, where their whole deal is that they're going to warn you about other Christians who aren't doing a good job so that you can avoid them. Well, I just want, to, I want us to think a little bit clearly here for a second about that. If you have someone who literally makes their money getting you angry at other Christians, might you want to be cautious and listening to the ways that they get you angry at other Christians? I think it's a, a tremendous concern, and you hear it on the radio in our area. There are radio stations in our area that have an emphasis on this programming. These people who are going to look, and they're going to look at the smallest thing that someone says that they disagree with, and suddenly that person's a false teacher, and they're riling everyone up, and anyone who doesn't separate from them is also a false teacher, and you have just this massive, massive blowout and tons of fallout because one person said something that maybe was actually wrong, but someone makes their money convincing other people to be angry. Be very cautious about people like that. I think that's a perfect example of what Jesus is saying. Those who use their discernment, so-called, to stir up anger in order to make a living, think is a violation of the principle that led Jesus to clear the temple. Getting farther, we're going from farther away to closer to home. Last one. I praise God this hasn't been a problem in our church. But just as a practical application here, I'm going to mention this, and, and uh, to my knowledge, this has never been an issue. But a, a popular trend right now, particularly uh, for stay-at-home moms, is these mid-level marketing groups. Okay? I don't want to call them all out by name because there's a lot of them. But the, these ones where, where you buy in and you sell your stuff to your friends and then you try and get your other friends and you try and get other friends... And you kind of build these networks, mid-level marketing. Again, I want to urge some caution. Do not trade your relationships in the local church for profit. If you, I mean, if you want to use essential oils to do things other than make your car run smoothly, okay, if that's what you think oil's for, more power to you. If you want your nails to have like pictures of great presidents, uh, whatever. If, if you want to have the best cookware, whatever. That's not the issue. Let's be very careful as a church that we not take the precious relationships we have within the body of Christ and use them as, as leverage for a personal business. And the most obvious way, I think, is mid-level marketing is a, is a great example of that. But I think any businessman in the church could be guilty of this. And so again, I'm urging us to have the same priorities that Jesus had for the temple and our church. The body of Christ is primarily here to worship Christ and be more conformed to his image. That's going to require us acting with wisdom rather than selfishness, particularly when we're dealing with questions of finances. 
That applies to pastors and how they lead and how they are paid. It applies to churches and how they pay pastors. It applies to us and the, and the marketing, the Christian marketing machine that we participate in. It applies to us in our personal relationships and using fellow church members for, for income purposes. So I'm just urging wisdom. And all of those things, they're not necessarily inherently bad things, but they are, uh, they are areas that demand wisdom. The gospel of God reaching out to us, just like the temple, the place where God reaches out to his people. The gospel of God reaching out to us is too important to be co-opted for personal enrichment. It is too valuable for us to tie on to other insignificant things. So Jesus cleanses the temple. Like I said, this is a secondary application, the primary application here. The effect of Jesus cleansing. It's interesting, the disciples, they see it, and they remember something that they had heard before. They remember something from the Bible, from Psalm 69 specifically. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the disciples see Jesus cleansing the temple, and they are reminded, we don't know if that happened the day he cleansed the temple or three years later when he rose from the dead, they are reminded that David described himself having zeal for the house of God. And here Jesus is identifying himself, he's putting himself into the role that David took, this zeal for the house of God. And literally, Jesus is consumed by that zeal. Jesus is so zealous about keeping the temple pure that eventually he's going to cleanse the temple again and it's going to result in his death. So Jesus literally is consumed by his zeal for the temple. And Jesus' disciples recognize that zeal. But then it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop with the disciples just saying, wow, Jesus really is passionate about the worship of God. Something else happens, and this is huge, particularly on this Easter Sunday. Verse number 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. They believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The appropriateness of the temple as a place of commerce is the starting point of this account. But now we're going to get to the real intent. There's value in just talking about the temple as a place of commerce. But this is the real focus. After Jesus cast the people out of the temple, the Jews come to him and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What are they asking? They're saying, you just kind of did something that's really a big deal. All right? You came into the temple, you subverted our authority, you threw all these people out, you cost us money, Jesus. What business do you have doing that? What sign do you give? What proof do you give that you have a right to do this? And so the Jews come and ask that question to Jesus, and he answers, very cleverly. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Usually, when he is asked for a sign, he says, you're not getting a sign. You won't believe anyway. Yet this time, he gives them a sign. However, do you think they're going to call him on his bluff? Do you think they're going to be like, well, he says that, that the temple is going to be destroyed. That if we destroy the temple, he's going to raise it up. Well, that's would require them destroying literally the most valuable piece of real estate in their entire country. 
So they're not going to do it. Yet, Jesus is pointing towards something far more significant. It would be significant if Jesus were to rebuild a temple in three days, right? We know how long it takes to build things. Right? We, we've seen, I mean, it's been like four years since Sam's Club was supposed to be built on the north side. Uh, we know how long it takes to build stuff. We, we know how long it takes. So if Jesus were to suddenly make, it, make something get built quickly, yes, that's a, that's a great miracle. However, he does something more. He speaks of the temple of his body. Jesus' sign of his right to regulate the worship of God is conquering death. If Jesus can conquer death, he is the true temple. You see, there is no need for this temple if Jesus has power over death. Because think back to the garden. In the garden, there's not this one place. The whole world is the temple. What breaks that? Sin and death. Sin and death cause Adam and Eve to be expelled from the garden. Yet Jesus has the power to conquer both sin and death. And suddenly we don't need a temple that's a building in Jerusalem because Jesus himself is that temple. Jesus himself has power over sin and death. So Jesus' sign is his own resurrection. The history of the temple shows that sin and death over and over destroy the temple. And here, the Jews attempt to do that. They will eventually crucify Jesus. Sin and death will again destroy God's dwelling with man. They will destroy his body. But in three days, that destruction is reversed. Three days, that destruction is counteracted by Jesus' resurrection. This is the story of Easter. This is why we celebrate Easter. Because through the resurrection of Christ, the sin and death that corrupted the garden temple, the sin and death that corrupted the tabernacle, the sin and death that corrupted Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple, that are corrupting Herod's temple here, it's all taken care of. It's resolved in the resurrection of Christ. It's resolved when he conquers that sin and death. When that body rose from the dead, it was the ultimate sign that Jesus was the one who regulated our worship of God. Jesus is the one who provides access so that we can boldly approach. Jesus is the one who in his resurrection allows us to be adopted as children. And so, yes, the, the account talking about the, the financial situation in the temple is important, but far more important here is the goal of John's gospel, that these were written that we might believe and that believing we would have life in his name, that in believing we would be united with our Savior in resurrection, in believing we would conquer death. And so Jesus, when he gives this prediction to the Pharisees, when he gives this sign, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The disciples eventually learned what he was talking about. It's likely they did not know it then. It says that they, they knew it later. The disciples eventually learned, but the Jews missed it. The sign the evidence that Jesus controls the worship of God, that Jesus provides access to God, that Jesus abolishes the sacrificial system. The sign of that is that there was a sacrifice and it was accepted and it was the, that acceptance was demonstrated by the resurrection. Jesus died. Jesus bled as a sacrifice. Jesus was risen again. So today, 
at Easter, I urge you, your only access to God is going to come through the one who is resurrected. He is truly the temple. He takes the place of that temple. He is raised again, and in him you also can experience resurrection. So this morning, we will partake of the Lord's Supper. This morning, we will remember exactly what happened to Jesus, that his body was broken, that he bled, that he died. Yet this morning, we also have the joy that the darkest day and the brightest day of history are separated by a mere three days. That day when the sky turned black, when Jesus' blood was shed, when his body was broken, three short days later, life and light arose from that grave. Jesus provides access to the Father. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is our sacrifice. And he has demonstrated that by being raised from the dead. So this morning as we partake, let us not forget that partaking of the elements is only half of what's going on here. We're only remembering the first half, but there is life in this. It is not merely an observation of Jesus' death, but also a remembrance that his body being broken and his blood being shed was not the end of the story of Jesus. It was merely the beginning because Jesus rises from the dead three days later. Let's take a few moments this morning to examine ourselves, to silently consider what Christ has done, to repent of any sins that God reveals to us, knowing that in this temple of Christ, we have life.